This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. The United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord. In June 2017, President Trump announced the U.S. plan to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. But despite its strong symbolism, the move has done little to dampen America's drive for clean energy. Donald Trump took his hand off the tiller, and America kept sailing towards a lower carbon future. That's because America wants to go there. That's because it's profitable. Along with numerous U.S. cities, states, and businesses, many countries have reaffirmed their commitments to the 2015 agreement. But has that been mostly talk and little action? If we measured talk, I think there'd be lots of countries who uh, could be classified as role models. So we, we look at the numbers. A Paris Progress Report, up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. In June 2017, President Trump announced that he'll start to withdraw the country from the Paris Climate Agreement reached by 195 countries in 2015, claiming it disadvantaged the United States. In fact, the deal allows each country to set their own customized and voluntary path toward energy fitness. The symbolism of the American government's withdrawal overshadowed the reality that the U.S. business community has embraced a clean energy future. So what progress has been made toward meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, at home and abroad? In the first part of today's show, Greg Dalton welcomes Carl Pope, former executive director of the Sierra Club and now an energy and environmental consultant. He's co-author with Michael Bloomberg of the 2017 book, Climate of Hope, How Cities, Businesses, and Citizens Can Save the Planet. Here's Greg's conversation with Carl Pope about a progress report on Paris. So June 1st, 2017, Donald Trump announced his intention to pull out from the Paris Climate Accord. Imagine Trump saying what he said. What was your reaction and your feeling on that day when he announced that? I was not surprised. I was appalled. And it seemed to me that the heart of the folly was that the president kept saying he was pulling out of Paris because it was a bad deal. I'm going to venture the United States never signed an international treaty that was more to our self-interest unless perhaps when we conquered most of the southwest from Mexico. That was a pretty good treaty for us. Uh, and Paris was pretty much as good. We committed under Paris to do nothing we weren't going to do anyway and that we aren't doing anyway. Other countries committed to do things that were very important to us that they begin to do. So it was very one-sided in our favor. And I said, I don't think the president has a clue what's in it. There was hope at that point that Ivanka, even Rex Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, would convince him to stay in. That didn't prevail. Uh, a lot of companies stood up and said, hey, stay in this thing and provide some predictability. Um, didn't happen. It didn't happen. And that was, this was, a, I think, a harbinger of what the rest of the Trump administration has been like. You will occasionally see signs of sensible thinking and people around him will take his instincts and try to tame them and eventually his desire for disruption trumps all. It does. Uh, but the Paris Climate Accord is voluntary, right? It's not 
binding and doesn't have the status of a treaty? And what is the recourse if someone countries don't meet their commitments? Is it name and shame? Is it what are the pressure points for well, noncompliance? The, 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 the underlying premise of Paris is very different than the way we were thinking about climate diplomacy in Copenhagen or Kyoto. Mm. The historic understanding was, oh, in order to solve the climate problems, countries have to sacrifice. Now we recognize that in order to solve the climate problem, what's needed is for countries to innovate. And innovation is profitable. Innovation makes people healthier. Innovation makes people safer. But it's hard work. So it's not that it happens automatically because it's good for us. But it's good for us. It's not only good for the climate. It's good for the countries that are doing it. And you can see this in the United States. We have actually, since Donald Trump became president, been cutting our emissions faster than we were under Barack Obama. We are now cutting our emissions faster than any other large economy on the planet. And we're doing so largely in the utility sector, largely by replacing expensive coal with efficiency, natural gas, wind and solar, all of which are cheaper. As a result, Wholesale rates for American power have fallen 25% during the same period of time that emissions from the utility sector have also dropped by more than 25%. So we're cleaning up our power sector because, you know, really not fundamentally because we care so much about the climate, but because utility customers in Oklahoma and Texas want cheap power. But there was, uh, you know, people talk about decoupling economic growth from carbon emissions. That's the goal, to, to not have the sacrifice you talked about. From 2014 to 2016, global emissions kind of flattened out. People thought, okay, decoupling is happening. 2017, global emissions went up again. Why? If you look at the numbers from 2017, one of the reasons they went up again is because there was a real shortfall of rainfall in countries that were heavily dependent on hydroelectric power like China. Mm. So China burned more coal because China had less hydroelectricity. Mm. That's going to be true as long as we're so reliant on hydro as a source of low-carbon electrons. Once we have hydro, we have onshore wind, we have offshore wind, we have solar, we have rooftop solar. Once we diversify, our renewable power portfolio, it won't be vulnerable to those up and down tweaks. But the fundamental fact is there was a very urgent message in Paris in 2015 that said we have to peak by 2020. Mm -hmm. The fact is it's not clear that we haven't already peaked. You're going to have little the ups and downs. It's not going to be a steady pathway. But we've actually seen far fewer emissions since the Paris Agreement than the Paris Agreement assumed. That does not mean we're out of the woods. We are not moving fast enough. We need to accelerate. But the fact is we are making more progress than was anticipated when nations stood and signed the Paris Accord. Is it possible that Trump made Paris more popular and effective than Obama ever could have? I think it's unequivocally the case. There's no doubt because what Trump did was to make Paris about American global leadership. Again, I think the intense reaction to the withdrawal from Paris was not about Paris. It was about America's role in the world. Donald Trump was saying the United States is not going to be great again. Because for most Americans, greatness is about leadership. And they looked at the withdrawal from Paris and said, 
that's not leadership. We did act by coincidence. We did a program at Climate One on June 1st, the day Trump announced his withdrawal. And Jim Sweeney, who has an energy institute at Stanford, worked in the Ford White House. That was his main point, was seeding American leadership uh, on, on a key point. Uh, after that, that announcement, uh, uh, Mike Bloomberg, who you co-authored a book with, Jerry Brown, got together uh, and did uh, America's Pledge. There's we, We're Still In, a group of companies and cities uh, around the country. So tell us about those two reactions to the Trump-announced withdrawal. Well, when Trump announced his withdrawal, there was a spontaneous flood of, wait a minute, he doesn't speak for me, from mayors, from governors— from CEOs, and I think this was particularly important in the corporate sector. The corporate sector did not want to pick an argument with the president about climate. That's not what CEOs mm. get paid to do, <laughs> pick fights with presidents. But Trump forced them into the game. They were sitting on the sideline. And Trump, by withdrawing from Paris, threatened their global leadership. They, they, part of what enables American companies to make money in China or Africa or Latin America or Europe is that the United States is a global leader. So what Trump did was a direct economic threat to American business, and American business rallied around. And the first thing that happened was everybody came together in 24 hours around a statement which said, we are still in. Mm. We are committed to Paris, and we're going to do our part to fulfill it. Uh, it was a reassurance message to the world. It was a solidarity moment in the United States, and it was a symbol of American leadership. And once that happened, uh, Mike Bloomberg and Jerry Brown realized that the world was going to want to know, was this really happening? It was going to be important to measure it. It was going to be important to report it. And it was going to be important to leverage it and use it to encourage other cities and other states and other companies to come into and to do more ambitious things. So they decided to create America's Pledge, which I serve as the vice chair of, along with uh, California ARB chair Mary Nichols. And we are in the process. We've turned in one report on the scale of the, the reaction by the real American economy. The American economy is decarbonizing. The American economy is innovating. And people in the world, the rest of the world, need to understand that because that will reassure them, not so much that they can afford to do it too, but that it's profitable. People understand that you know, we're a capitalist society. And if our businesses are doing something, and there's no national law that requires them to, none of this stuff that's happening is happening because the federal government is making it happen. Because the federal government's taking its hand off the tiller. It's like if you were in a sailing ship and the person who was supposed to be steering the boat took their hand off the tiller. What's supposed to happen is the ship is supposed to turn up into the wind and stall out. <laughs> well, Donald Trump took his hand off the tiller, and America kept sailing towards a lower-carbon future. That's because America wants to go there. That's because it's profitable. A couple of the pillars of the uh, U.S. pledge at Paris were the clean power plan and uh, the increase of mileage efficiency to more than 50 miles a gallon. Uh, Trump has taken a sledgehammer to both of those. Those, remember, that it was the U.S., uh, first of all, Barack Obama, President Xi getting together. U.S. and China opened the door to Paris. U.S. had to have credibility. That was a clean power plan and CAFE. Now, Trump has taken a sledgehammer to both of those. Is that affecting U.S. leadership and its 
progress toward Paris. Those were the pillars. Well, I don't. First, I don't think Donald Trump would like us to think that he's a big guy who wields a sledgehammer. I think he's more got a, like an ice, one of those things you use to break up ice in your refrigerator. <laughs> and he's pounding at the base of the Washington Monument with it. And I don't really think it's going to do that much. And we can, be, we can see the results. Since he announced the end of the Clean Power Plan, the Clean Power Plan basically ended the day he was elected because he announced it and everybody right. understood. Since that time, the rate of retirement of coal-fired power plants in the United States has accelerated. More coal plants will retire this year than have than retired the last two years that Barack Obama was president combined. We have cut our utility emissions. Texas, the state which was headed by Energy Secretary Rick Perry, and he was the governor of it, and now that Rick Perry is gone from Texas, this is the year in which Texas will get more of its electricity from the wind than it gets from coal. And the reason for all this is quite simply, coal's not competitive anymore. The one I like also, I think, that you mentioned in the report is Oklahoma. The Oklahoma, the home of, of Scott Pruitt, uh, now gets more wind power than, than coal power, which... Uh, and Scott Pruitt spent eight years as attorney general trying to stop Oklahoma from doing that. And he totally failed, again, because he was taking an ice pick to the Washington Monument. The fact is, Oklahoma is using so much wind because... Oil companies in Oklahoma want cheap electricity. <laughs> a lot of the users of that power are oil companies. And the same thing is going to happen with the clean power plan. The president's announced he wants to go after it. Ford and General Motors have said, please, please don't do that. And there were always 12 states that lined up with California and said they were going to have clean car standards even if Washington didn't. Now they're 18. It was always a coastal thing. You had California, Washington, Oregon, and then you had New England and the mid-Atlantic states. Now you've got Minnesota, Illinois, and Iowa. Republican Iowa was one of the states that joined these lawsuits against Trump. So, yes, I understand. There's no particular reason for people to believe me when I say that clean energy is cheaper than dirty energy. On the other hand, when oil companies in Oklahoma are buying wind power instead of coal, you might believe oil companies. <laughs> For sure. You're listening to a Climate One Progress Report on the Paris Climate Accord. Coming up, Greg Dalton continues his conversation with former Sierra Club chairman Carl Pope, and we'll also listen back to some of the program we recorded on June 1st, 2017, the day President Trump made his Paris announcement. Even though every day in my Twitter feed it's like, oh yes, he's going to pull out of Paris, I really kind of felt in my heart that it's such a stupid thing to do that in the end it wouldn't happen. That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One and more of Greg Dalton's conversation with former Sierra Club chairman Carl Pope about progress on the Paris Climate Accord. There's somewhat of a debate raging in foreign policy and other places about whether two degrees is attainable, achievable. Uh, Paris was set for two degrees, and there was sort of the ambitious action, no, we need to get to 1.5 reduction since uh, pre-industrial times. Uh, there's been some fairly pointed debates about two degrees can't happen, we're deluding ourselves. What do you think? Is two degrees delusional? Is it aspirational? 
Uh, I think two degrees is not delusional. It's achievable, but it's aspirational. But the key thing to understand is the people who say we can't do it are looking at the wrong mathematical function. If you look at where we are today, we're in bad trouble. Today's emission rates are horrendous. Two degrees is not achievable with today's emission rates. If you look just at how much we've cut in the last five, how fast are we moving? How fast are we cutting every year? We're still in big trouble. But if you look at acceleration, mm -hmm. if you look at how are we doing today, remember, three years ago, emissions were climbing radically. Now global emissions are probably flat. That's a big acceleration. If you draw that line, it shows that five years from now, emissions will be coming down radically. And if emissions come down by 3% a year, uh, we can not only meet two degrees, uh, we, can, we can beat it and we get down below into a safer zone. Whether we can get all the way to 1.5, that might take till the end of the century. And we're going to have some climate change. I want to be clear. Two degrees does not mean the climate is stable. Uh, 1.5 degrees doesn't mean the climate is stable. We're going to have to cope with and adapt to some level of climate change. What we're trying to avoid is climate change that's so overwhelming that half of the state of Florida vanishes under the water. That's hard to adapt to. So you think we're on track for Paris. Other people say not, not so sure. Uh, there's a lot of urgency in the climate community. There's a lot of despair. There's a lot of anxiety. There's this pre-traumatic stress uh, disorder that psychiatrists have identified. Do you ever have moments where you have to feel like you, you fake optimism because that's what's going to be effective and that's what people want to hear from you? I don't find it possible to fake optimism, so actually, no. Uh, and I don't want to say we're on track. I mean, we are moving, and we are moving faster than we were moving under Barack Obama. That doesn't mean we're moving fast enough. Hmm. We're not moving fast enough. The problem with this challenge is that people have thought about it that there was going to be a moment when we solved it because they thought about it as a single problem. It's not a single problem. It's a symptom of five or six problems. But the thing that we have to understand is we have to look ahead. We keep looking at climate through the rearview mirror. Look at what we've done in the last 30 years. We need to be spending much more of our energy looking forward and saying, what are we likely to do in the next 30 years? What do we want to do just for selfish reasons in the next 30 years? And is there a gap between what we want to do and what we need to do? It's not clear to me there is a gap. Interestingly, there have been three new studies done by three different international consortia of uh, public health experts. Each one of them concludes that the medical savings from solving the climate problem will more than pay for the solution, that doctor's bills alone will go down enough if we actually meet the two-degree goal, that it will pay for the whole bill. There will be no bill. We will save enough on health care to pay for climate solutions, and then we'll have all these new power plants and all this great new stuff. But $100 billion was the planned transfer of wealth from uh, industrialized countries to, to developing countries. That's part of goes back to Copenhagen, Paris. That money transfer is not happening. Um, how, that's a big part of uh, the equation to help developing countries get the technology they need to do the things that wealthy countries can afford. How can that be addressed? Well, the Paris. most important thing to understand is that there are two different problems, and they probably have different solutions. Problem one is costs capital to build 
solar panels and wind turbines. And we need solar panels and wind turbines in Nigeria, and we need them in Bangladesh, and we need them in the Philippines. And those countries don't have enough domestic capital to mm -hmm. build those mm -hmm. things. Guess what? American banks, European insurance companies, uh, Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds would love to invest in solar panels and wind turbines in those places. They're good businesses. The problem is it's very hard to loan money into those countries long term because we don't have the right kind of global financial system. So the most important thing we can do is to facilitate direct investment. There's trillions of dollars of capital in Europe, the United States, and mm -hmm. the Middle East, and Japan mm -hmm. looking for yield, sitting on the sidelines. We need to get that capital on the field. The second problem is damages. When there are hurricanes and floods and other things caused by climate change in countries like Bangladesh, we need a much more robust international assistance system that really ensures people against natural disasters and moves in to help them. So there are two problems. The clean energy side, which is a business problem, and the loss and damage side, which is natural disasters and is a matter of a stronger global safety net. Right. And yeah, in many ways, climate is a big part of climate. One is climate is not just an environmental issue. It's a public health issue. Exactly. You've been making it's, that point. It's much, much more than the environment. Um, so what you're talking about, this rise of tribalism globally and, and nationalism in different places around the world. And yet that seems like we're going tribal at a time where we need to go collective to this great tragedy of the commons that is climate, how are we going to solve a global problem when we're becoming more tribal in our behavior and, and thoughts? It would be very difficult, frankly, if the world of technology was back where it was in Copenhagen. If solving climate was a big sacrifice, it's hard to share sacrifice in a tribal world. Tribes don't share sacrifice well. Mm -hmm. If climate is a big opportunity, which is what the numbers show, if climate is an economic opportunity, it's much easier for tribes to compete to grab the opportunity. That's something tribes do pretty well, mm. is they get competitive with each other. Mm -hmm. Let us be very clear. One of China's major national electrical companies has made a series of very strategic investments in the advanced materials department of major U.S. universities, including some here in California. They have hired those universities to figure out how to make the cost of transmitting renewable electricity long distance unbelievably cheap because China doesn't want to steal our technology anymore. China wants to develop its own technology. Mm -hmm. China is off to the races. And the United States, under its present leadership, is not even in the starting blocks. Mm -hmm. But fortunately for the world, and unfortunately for the United States, India is at the starting blocks. Europe is at the starting blocks. Korea is at the starting blocks. Latin America is at the... Everybody else is in this race. We have temporarily dropped out. That is bad news for us. It's not actually bad news for the climate because everybody else will develop the technology that we could have developed. Yeah, China mass-produced solar panels, drove down the price, created a public good, and the U.S. response is to slap tariffs on, on the import of solar panels. Exactly. And, you know, and now that wind and solar are cheaper in the United States, what do we see the president's cabinet doing? Trying to find ways to resurrect Harry Truman administration-style industrial policy to keep uncompetitive coal plants 
open. I mean, literally, the model that is being suggested for Donald Trump of what it is to be a great American president is to be Harry Truman and nationalize the utility sector so we can keep unaffordable power plants open and deny electricity customers access to cheap electrons. That is pretty strange. Greg Dalton has been getting a Paris Progress Report from Carl Pope, former chairman of the Sierra Club and now an energy and environmental consultant. As Greg noted earlier, on the day that President Trump announced the U.S. plan to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, Climate One recorded a program assessing the administration's climate record up to that point. Greg's guests that day were Amy Jaffe, Executive Director of Sustainability at the University of Davis Graduate School of Management, Gil Duran, former spokesman for California Governor Jerry Brown and U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, and currently an advisor to billionaire climate advocate Tom Steyer, and Jim Sweeney, Professor of Management and Engineering at Stanford University and Director of the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center. Let's listen as Greg asks them about the Paris Accord on that day in June 2017. Amy Jaffe, how did you feel when you heard the news, when you, you saw that statement about draconian burdens and those sorts of things? You know, I was in line buying my lunch and I was sort of reading it um, on the sort of teleprompter, you know, what the TV was on silent. And uh, it was almost surreal. You know, I am a, always an eternal optimist. And I really, even though every day in my Twitter feed, it's like, oh, yes, he's going to pull out of Paris, I really kind of felt in my heart that it's such a stupid thing to do that in the end, it wouldn't happen, right? But I, I comforted... You thought Rex Tillerson could talk him out of it. You know, you know, the truth is, people were saying that Rex Tillerson was going to talk him out of it. And, you know, if you think about how far we've come in terms of corporate response to climate change and all these things... The idea that as a country, we were counting on Rex Tillerson to talk some sense into the president, you know, is really sort of an amazing statement. But, you know, I talked to some journalists as it was sort of unwinding before, you know, today. And, and really, truly, a lot of climate policy in this country is both designed and implemented at the state and city level. Um, they're at the forefront, always have been in the forefront. And you just have to roll the clock back a little at a time and remember that under President George W. Bush, um, a lot of states took initiative. And I used to tell people when I give talks in Europe and people were so upset about American policy, about Kyoto, and I would say, well, you know, U.S. policy on climate is not actually made at the federal level. And even if you look at the Clean Power Plan, which was the fundamental showpiece of President Obama's signatory to this climate agreement in Paris. You know, most states in the United States have made their commitments under the Clean Power Plan, and most states are not going to unwind those policies because they're driving uh, innovation in the state, they're attracting corporations that have already made commitments to renewable energy, um, people are seeing it as future jobs. We've got China with a carbon price. We have Europe with strong technology drive coming from their car industry and from their trucking industry and from um, other, other segments. And so really, truly, um, when the president says that there were all these draconian things that his predecessor agreed to, a lot of those things are going to stay in place. And one last point, not to overstate this, but the one thing that I might have guessed as an energy expert that the president would unravel and would make it hard for us to meet our climate obligation under Paris 
was that President Obama committed to have the oil and gas industry capture their methane leakage. And our Congress, surprisingly, sustained that policy, right? And so the president couldn't even undo that proposed regulation. So it is a little bit um, disingenuous to talk about these onerous things that we agreed to since we're probably going to do most of those things. John McCain came in and uh, offered a decisive vote on that, uh, keeping those methane regulations in place. Gil Duran, uh, let's talk about three different touchstones, democracy, economy, and the environment. You, and the narrative that's been put forward here by the president saying that action on climate hurts jobs. Touch those three stones for us. Well, this whole ex the whole Trump experience has been a waking nightmare. And so this is just the latest installment. Um, and but at this point, it's sort of something we're uh, becoming accustomed to, sadly, because it's it's constant. It doesn't stop. And so really, to me, the most striking thing, because we knew this was coming, was that every single thing Donald Trump said was the opposite of the truth. It was the reverse of the truth. And this is very deliberate and it's by design. It's to tell this other reality uh, that in reality, when we talk about the, the role of the economy and, and the role climate action plays in the economy, um, it's our biggest opportunity. And China certainly realizes that what, what Trump is doing is against prosperity. Uh, when we talk about democracy and standing up and doing what's right for the American people, this action only serves a very narrow interest of American society, people in fossil fuel companies. This is the opposite. This is against the best interests of the American people. Um, it's against democracy. You know, we know that majorities of people, even in, in Republican majority states, supported staying in Paris and support climate action. Um, and so uh, you know, everything he said was the opposite of the truth. And, and we see this across the board on all of the issues. And to me, that's the scariest thing about it is when you're in a democracy and you're doing nothing but lying, what is your actual strategy and what is your, your end game? Jim Sweeney, there's an amazing array of people and institutions that came out in recent days in support of the Paris Climate Agreement. As Amy just mentioned, Rex Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, Gary Cohn, chair of the National Economic Council, Arch Cole, Peabody Cole, Chevron, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, uh, IBM, Coke and Pepsi, when are they on the same side? Uh, Lin Lindsey Graham, uh, John McCain, all in favor of Paris. And uh, when the president, uh, it was clear he was going to pull out of uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, Jeff Immelt, CEO of General Electric, said, quote, climate change is real. Industry must now lead and not depend on government. So where's industry go? Um, I think this is actually consistent with what's been happening over the last 20, 30 years now. Um, what I found is quite remarkable is that the energy per dollar of GDP in the U.S. economy has been declining about 2% a year average for the last 40 years since the oil crisis in 1973. Some of that was federal government, the fuel efficiency standards. Some of it was what the state and local governments did. California's done a lot. But a large amount was what industry has been doing in innovating in ways to reduce energy in the products. General Electric has been a wonderful example. I mean, even the airlines, which we all love to hate, it's interesting to know that uh, since the oil crisis in 73, they use half as much energy per seat mile as they did in 73, 
but per person mile, they use a quarter as much energy. And this has been all private sector. Or how does that math work? Are some people math. standing? How does that math work? Yeah, the planes are a lot fuller, if anybody's ever noticed okay. this. Okay. <laughs> and, and, but it's dynamic pricing. You check on the price of the flights one day, you go to buy it three days later, it's an entirely different price. You try to use your frequent flyer miles, and you can't use it on this flight, but you can use it on that flight. It's all part of large-scale optimization problems that the airlines use in order to keep the planes full and so as to um, make more profit. But in the act of making more profit, uses less energy per seat mile. So right now, Jeff Immelt was absolutely right. Industry is going to take a lead in innovation, but so are states and local governments. Um, you see cities around the United States and Canada that are taking very innovative steps in order to have more efficient use of energy or have cleaner energy. And I kind of keep focusing on more efficient use of energy because by a factor of 10 to 1, that's how we've decarbonized our economy, much more than the cleaner energy. It's been energy efficiency. So it's been industry, state, and local governments, and individual households with change of attitudes. Those are going to have to keep happening, and people are going to have to say, just because the federal government's not doing it, just because the federal government leadership have their head in the stands, we don't have to, because after all, an industry making a decision on its investments in new technologies is not going to look just four years in advance. They look a long ways down the road. So people have to believe that after Trump, whenever that Trump administration ends, they're going to have to live with the reality. And so I think industry is going to look beyond this. Jim Sweeney, director of the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center at Stanford University, speaking at Climate One on June 1, 2017, the day President Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord. Coming up, Greg Dalton gets an international Paris report card from physicist Bill Hare, one of the leaders of the Climate Action Tracker. Even countries that simply don't like the rating that we've given them have come to us and told us that. You haven't heard about who those countries are, so that's an indication level of trust that countries have towards the Climate Action Tracker Consortium. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to a Climate One progress report on the Paris Climate Accord. We turn now to Greg Dalton's conversation with Bill Hare, a physicist and climate scientist with 30 years' experience in science, impacts, and policy responses to climate change. He's a founder and CEO of Climate Analytics, and also one of the leaders of the Climate Action Tracker, recognized as one of the most credible sources of information on national and global action on climate change. Greg spoke to Bill Hare from the Bonn Climate Change Conference in Germany to get his Paris report card. So you track the progress of countries around the world toward their Paris commitments. Who are the role models? Who's doing the best so far? Who's getting an A? Well, really, it's, it's relatively small countries like Ethiopia that are really getting top marks. Um, when I say small, I mean small economies, large populations, relatively poor countries who are 
doing the most, actually, relatively speaking. Um, there are others that are, are, are making progress, um, but by far um, not uh, enough. But a very interesting example, actually, is, is India, um, which is moving towards a, a two-degree compatible um, pathway, not quite consistent with the Paris Agreement's one-and-a-half-degree limit, but their massive investment and encouragement of renewable energy uh, in India, which is now cheaper than coal, and the slowdown of coal investments leads us to give them a higher rating than many other countries. And that um, is reflective of um, the policy settings in India and the way in which the uh, Modi government has moved in particular to push forward climate change. They're doing that not just um, because of economics, I, I guess, but also because they are aware that um, they're being looked at as a potential geopolitical leader. They're aware that China is moving forward. And so there's an emerging sense of um, mild competition, I guess you could say, between China and India on climate change. And you're seeing this reflected in other things that the Indian government is proposing or talking about, such as their proposal to um, end the sale of uh, internal combustion engine cars in 2030 or so. On the uh, India's talk about ending mm. the sale of internal combustion cars, do you give good marks for just words that come out of the mouth of a politician? Because some would say that, you know, politicians, it's easy for them to make pledges about the future when they know they probably won't be in office. So uh, are you measuring talk or are you measuring action and steel in the ground and dollars invested? Well, if, if we measured talk, I think there'd be lots of countries who uh, could be classified as role models. So we, we look at the numbers. We look yeah. at, um, mm -hmm. at what the current policies that governments have in place and try and calculate what that means. We look at the country's um, pledges, as the NDCs, nationally determined contributions, as they're called, and quantify what that means. Mm -hmm. And we may use... Um, a government statement, um, perhaps to qualify an assessment if it's on the border of one category or another, insufficient or critically insufficient, then we look at what the country's saying and the trend of what's happening. Um, so there's a bit of qualitative judgment involved there, but generally we don't rate our country on promises to phase out fossil cars in 20 years unless they actually have a policy in place that moves that economy forward. One country I noticed is uh, Russia, the biggest emitter that has not ratified the Paris Climate Accord. Um, is Russia moving toward Paris? Where are they on your um, grading scale? Well, they are um, critically insufficient. They, the, Russia is a bit of an outlier, actually, in the sense that it really hasn't joined the Paris Agreement. It doesn't have anything in the way of climate policies. Um, I think we all worry a bit about where Russia might end up in terms of will it become an obstacle to progress? Will it cause trouble as it has mm -hmm. historically? So um, it has a lot of fossil fuel interest, um, not just oil but coal. So it's a potential problem area. Um, I think many tend to overlook the significance of Russia in this context. And the, the paradox is that Russia could do an enormous amount of good if it moved in the direction of renewable energy and so on. It's also highly vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So I think for many observers, the Russian situation is quite frustrating. You rank Japan as highly insufficient. Is that because they have to went to coal after the denuclearization after Fukushima? 
Well, in part, um, it's about coal in Japan. It's also about the dependence on natural gas and oil. Um, I mean, Japan is an interesting example because they have already a highly efficient economy and they have a massive potential to move in a cleaner direction. Um, and I, I think that um, Japan is, is basically losing out a bit economically by not um, moving out of coal um, as fast as would be economically justified. Um, so, you know, if it persists with its investments to uh, invest in, in even more new coal plant, then um, it's going to be in a very bad position uh, in relation to the Paris Agreement. It's not necessarily the case that if you shut down or phase out nuclear power plant, you have to have an ongoing problem with a high carbon intensive economy. Um, Germany has also got a phase out of nuclear power underway, um, impending in the next few years fully, um, has faced its own challenges um, in the same way that Japan has, but overall, um, its trend in emissions is in the right direction, not as much as it originally promised for 2020. Um, but overall, I'm, I'm increasingly comfortable that the new government is going to move it faster in the coming um, year or so. Um, so I, I think that Japan needs to look at that. Um, Another problem with Japan that we're also concerned about and have flagged is the investment that Japanese banks are making in coal development in Southeast Asia, for example, that uh, quite a number of Japanese banks are heavily invested in supporting new coal developments in the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam, and so on, and that could raise questions about financial stability. Japan hasn't really moved to provide the signal to its financial institutions that um, it's time to look in a different direction than carbon intensive investments. So that's another dimension to uh, well, actually both Japan and Korea uh, in this context. Of course, they're not alone in, in making those kinds of investments. China also has um, a significant exposure in this area as well. China has a uh, small price on carbon. Uh, other countries had one until, you know, there's kind of been on and off, on and off. Uh, price on carbon in Australia. Is carbon pricing, is that a key driver you see where there's a price on carbon that countries are moving faster? Well, ultimately, um, I think most economists would say you've got to have a, a, a price on carbon in the long run to bring about the, the transitions needed to cause those small changes in behaviour that add up collectively to larger, larger changes in, in emissions reductions. The problem um, is that politically, governments are having a hard time introducing and sustaining consistent carbon pricing. Um, the European Union has had its trading system, um, which worked at first, but then after the global financial crisis, the EUTS, the EU trading system price, um, more or less collapsed. It's only recently begun to rise again, really. Um, Australia is an even bigger debacle, where uh, I think one of the world's most comprehensive climate change packages uh, was introduced um, five or six years ago um, that combined a range of different instruments. Um, it set up a clean energy finance corporation, it set up renewable energy agencies, it, it had a carbon price system coming in, building towards a trading system. It had um, measures to offset the cost 
of increased electricity in poorer households through compensation systems. It had um, a program that would have funded um, job transition in a high carbon industry. So really it was um, a, a world-class system. And I say that because the Climate Action Tracker Consortium evaluated that program some years ago. Then it was repealed by a Conservative government under Tony Abbott um, in 2014, if I recall correctly. Um, and since that time, there's been virtually no uh, policies at all. Um, I think that uh, it's hard to think of a single measure in Australia beyond the renewable energy target, which was a holdover from the previous government that's made any impact on Australia's um, emissions. So it's basically a, a climate policy-free zone at present. So that raises the question whether democracies, whose which zig and zag, Australia was, if I recall, the first uh, national election in which climate change was a primary issue, and it was heralded as a success, and then it was undone by a, a succeeding government. That raises the question whether democracies can stay the course and get the job done over the decades required, or if other forms of government, more authoritarian, state-driven mm -hmm. economies... Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, China comes to mm -hmm. mind, of course, even perhaps South Korea. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing correlation of, uh, you know, less democratic governments can have the, the uh, can stay the course over uh, political cycles where democracies mm -hmm. can't? Well, I, look, I think the picture is pretty mixed. I mean, sometimes um, the United Kingdom is accused of being the mother of all democracies. And it, you know, indeed has stayed the course over a very long period of time on climate change through different um, governments, uh, both sides of the, of the fence, if you like. Um, so that's an example of a government that has been able to move forward, not always at the same rate, not always at the same level, but has, has moved forward as a body politic. Um, and then um, the, the counterexample, I guess, on, de on democracy is Australia. Um, but in the middle, you have uh, mm -hmm. countries like India, which is the world's biggest democracy, which is beginning to progressively move forward, um, maybe not as fast mm -hmm. as would be economically justified, but the political pressures inside India to deliver to farmers and towns and villages um, access to electric energy, electric power uh, for pumps, lighting and so on. And the government's finding the only way to cost effectively do that is to roll out solar. Um, that is an example of democracy at work. Um, on the, let's say, more authoritarian spectrum, we've already mentioned Russia, um, which is a fairly authoritarian government by any measure that has a fairly bad history on climate policy in general. Um, not, mm -hmm. not universally bad, but I think overall a, a, not a good story to tell. Um, China has uh, also a fairly authoritarian government, and it has moved forward consistently um, in a way. But... If you unpack the Chinese story, um, a lot of the momentum on climate policy has stemmed from uh, big city population level concerns about air pollution and the increasing mm -hmm. unrest that that has caused. And so the central government has reacted uh, uh, to try and bring in measures to reduce emissions, which on the back of that um, begin to eliminate coal um, and it's begun to address um, automobile pollution, which is also a big issue in Chinese cities, by moving towards electric vehicles. 
So that story is complicated because the Chinese um, political developments within a, a relatively authoritarian regime are prompted by um, the outbreak of citizen concern and those governments reacting uh, to that, um, which is a, you know, a, a good measure of the political effect that concerns about environment, pollution and climate change can have on governments. What's been the impact of uh, the U.S. announced withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord? Uh, we've heard people in the United States say that Trump made Paris more popular than, than Obama ever could have domestically. But internationally, how, what's been the impact, if you're able to measure this, of the U.S. saying we're not going to lead and we're not going to even go, you know, be part of Paris? It might be a bit unkind to say bemusement. Um, but it wouldn't be far from the truth. I think that compared to when uh, President Bush rejected the Kyoto Protocol, when it, it did cause a major crisis, um, the withdrawal of the Trump administration or the, failure, or the announcement that the Trump administration does not intend to ratify the Paris Agreement um, mm -hmm. caused a shock, um, but the whole system quickly coalesced around the momentum for the Paris Agreement to proceed. Um, and mm -hmm. as a consequence at the international, the multilateral level where the Paris rule book is being negotiated and so on, um, I, I don't say we've seen a really big impact actually. Um, I think we see the same old problems we've always had with these negotiations. I, I don't see a fundamental problem like I did after the Kyoto Protocol repudiation. At the domestic level in some countries, um, then there are voices that say, look, um, the US is not moving forward, we shouldn't, we should wait, we should stop, we should go slow, um, and uh, we should watch out for what the US is doing and, um, and basically put a pause on climate policies. Those voices um, you know, vary in influence depending upon the country. I don't think they're uh, having a dominant effect at all, actually. Um, if anywhere, perhaps this is influencing most of all the conservative government um, in Australia. Um, one issue where the US actually is playing a constructive engagement role in the present negotiations is contributing to discussions on transparency, monitoring, reporting, etc., in a constructive way. And I guess that may ultimately reflect a longer-term judgment of the United States that it, knows, it needs to know what other countries are doing as much as anyone else. Greg Dalton has been getting a Paris Progress report from Bill Hare, a physicist and climate scientist with 30 years' experience in science, impacts, and policy responses to climate change, and one of the leaders of the Climate Action Tracker. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.